Welcome to The Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. Welcome to the podcast today. This is exciting for me. John Meacham is here. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning author, historian. He's a presidential biographer, former editor in chief of Newsweek, contributing editor in Time. But today he is here to talk to us about his new podcast. John, you're producing and hosting a new podcast, Fate of Fact. First off, welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Thank you. In your your podcast is described as one where you explore how fear has conquered truth and how politics are being held hostage by misinformation. Uh, not to have you dig too deeply into the obvious, but tell us why you think it's important that people tune into your podcast right now in this moment. Well, we've never had one of our two major political parties be in such sustained flight from fact, at least since the Civil War. The conspiratorial thinking, the triumph of fantasy over reality on the American right is fundamentally debilitating to democracy itself. Democracy only works if we agree on a certain set of facts about which we can then argue and disagree. But If people are dwelling in different universes, then the democratic lowercase d covenant falls apart because at that point, there's nothing for me if you and I disagree about how to spend money or whether to build that road or or pass that program. We can't have that conversation if, for instance, I think you're an illegitimate actor in this, if I think that you've stolen an election. If I think that you're in the pocket of the Chinese Communist Party, if I think that, you know, the Ukrainians own you, the fundamental bond of trust breaks down. And I have focused on the right here because the left is not suffering from this right now. They could. It could happen this afternoon. It could happen tomorrow because they're human beings, too. But it hasn't happened. Uh, It is, in fact, the American right that has decided that If they don't like the reality they see, they will invent another. Well, let's talk about that for a moment, because I listened to the pilot episode. It is riveting. I highly recommend this. But one of the things that you say that, and you emphasized it here, facts have a gloomier fate on the right than on the left. And you just pointed out how one of our two major political parties uh, seems to be held enthralled by uh, misinformation. So if facts have a gloomier fate on the right than on the left, how do you get anyone on the right to care? Why is this just not a conversation where you're preaching to the choir and everyone's like, yeah, 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 you're, you're absolutely right, when the group that is being, you know, let's just be kind, victimized by misinformation, uh, isn't paying attention. How do you get them to care? You simply tell the story. You tell the truth. You can't, it seems to me that one of the mistakes that is often made is the sense that you give them a little bit of credibility and you bring them in and then you'll convince them. I think it's okay to preach to a choir on the off chance and the hope that the choir at some point leaves the church and evangelizes in their daily lives. And so I would love to do an intervention with the American right 
I don't think that that's a likely thing to happen, but I don't see how you can begin to, and I don't even want, I don't even want to say recover, but, but to some extent it is. I don't see how you can promulgate a reality-based sense of things without diagnosing the problem, right? So to, to stick with that metaphor, if you don't diagnose the problem, you can't operate on the condition. And so my sense is, this is my opinion. If anything, uh, I think that folks on the right should, I don't want to say should appreciate, but I, I am enormously admiring in many ways of Ronald Reagan, which is not a popular thing on the left. I'm, parenthetically, I'm not a Democrat. I voted for people in both parties. I, I used to say I plan to continue to. That plan may be, uh, may be off for a while. But I'm talking about a party of Reagan and the Bushes and McCain and Romney. That's what I want the Republicans to be, because at least that was a rational actor. Right now, the right is like the PLO in the 70s, right? There's, just, there's not a lot of constructive conversation. So if I were on the right and I were listening to this, but I would hope, I would hope that they would appreciate that I'm coming at this from a historical point of view and not an ideological one. Right. I don't think the left is always right, but I do think that the party as constituted under Eisenhower, Nixon, Ford, Reagan and the Bushes and Senator McCain and Senator Romney is not only in abeyance, but it's fundamentally broken. So I'm not saying, hey, become Democrats. I'm saying become Reagan Republicans. I can't believe I'm here uh, about to take issue with John Meacham about matters of history. But do you think you're giving too much credit to uh, past historical moments? I mean, you know, look, certainly it is true that we saw the last president and uh, a lot of his supporters and enablers embrace what they described, not their words, not mine, alternative facts. We saw that. The misinformation did not begin in the Trump administration. I mean, my mother is a survivor of Jim Crow, Mississippi. There's always been a strain of misinformation premised on bigotry, premised on what you describe in your podcast as a victimhood that is born of the fact that there's a certain group of folks who no longer get to be the deciders of everything and they don't like it. So that didn't just start with the last president. And are you giving too much credit to us culturally and as a society when you suggest that, you know, it's only now that we've started to see the rise of lies? This is not in no way is this the first time we've seen the rise of lies, whether it's white supremacy or before that, human enslavement, the removal of indigenous peoples, the subjugation of women, the exclusion and demonization of people of sundry sexual identity, gender identity. Of course, that's inherent in the history and life of the Republic. What is different is that none of the presidents I mentioned a minute ago ever lost an election and said they didn't. They argued within a constitutional framework for what they wanted the country to be. And they played by the rules, which is not happening now. 60% of self-identified Republicans in the United States of America today believe that the 2020 election was stolen. 
So that is different. And I can't believe I'm sitting here saying that something is entirely new. I spent most of my time proving that Ecclesiastes was right, you know, that there's no thing new under the sun. But this is, I have thought for a long time that Donald Trump represented a difference of degree, not of kind. I am now less sure of that because I do not believe, and tell me, obviously, if you disagree, I do not believe that Eisenhower or Reagan or Nixon or Ford or President Bush, either one, I do not believe that they were fundamentally about smashing up the Constitution. I do not believe that they were autocratic figures, and Trump is. So I think that's an important distinction. Let me ask you this. So if we put aside the difference, the substantive difference between the last president and some of his Republican predecessors or other uh, you know, leaders in um, the Republican Party, um, please, please. This is just on my mind because of Maureen Dowd's column this weekend. Uh, and this goes to your point, I think. People have argued, for instance, that the way Vice President Cheney approached Iraq was a big lie that in some ways prefigured or laid the groundwork for what we're seeing now, right? That's that's a fairly familiar argument. But it never occurred to Dick Cheney when on the afternoon of election day in 2004, when the early exit polls, which were wrong, had John Kerry winning pretty significantly. And when George W. Bush came back to Washington and got off the helicopter, he thought he had lost that afternoon. It did not occur to them to say it was a stolen election. So I think that we need to be careful, and I I recognize the irony of being careful when I'm being this broad stroke. I do think that we can normalize the flight from fact in a way that minimizes how profound this crisis is. The run-up to the Iraq war was incredibly troubled, but they were acting out of motives that were within an American tradition. It may not be a good American tradition, but it was an American tradition. This is not that. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, but I think that that's a very, uh, it's an important distinction because what you're really focusing in on, I mean, there are two points that I take from uh, what you just said. One, look, American history, American politics has always been suffused with an element of people who don't exactly tell the truth. That's always been the case. But what we have had is this uniquely American thing about uh, the peaceful transition of power. It started with president number one. When you lose, you take your cookies, you say, you know, great election, good job, God bless America, and you go home. What you don't do, and what is new, if I understand your point correctly, is this notion of not accepting the loss and never accepting a loss if you're the one that's losing. That's the thing that you point out is so striking about this moment. So let me ask you, do you think that the American people have fundamentally changed, or do you think that there's always been Uh, this element of Americanism, which would so easily gravitate toward a lie. So that World War II is a moment where there were a whole lot of Americans who would have been happy to see Hitler take over Europe. Uh, Father Charles Coughlin, the Christian Front, they were very active. They marched against American intervention in the war. They openly embraced fascism. 
Do you think that the attraction that so many Americans have to misinformation is a new thing, or is this just part of a strain that's always been there? I think it is part of a strain that's always been there. And 40% of the country is usually unreachable, given whatever the era is. The most united we've ever been, broadly put, was in the American Revolution, which was a, you know, a white male undertaking. And that was probably 80-20. But there were a fifth of folks who wanted to remain loyal to Britain. So, and we've gone down from the 80%. And now it's about 52-48, 51-49. So that's a historical fact. The appeal of isolationism, of nativism, of racism, of extremism uh, is perennial. And American history is defined in each given generation by the extent to which those forces are allowed to flow or to the extent to which we manage to make them ebb. And so because we're human beings and because a republic is the fullest expression of all of us, what does democracy mean? It's the rule of the people. Because of our fallen, frail, and fallible natures, because of our lust for power, we are always, forever, vulnerable to narratives and means to individual or tribal power. And the point of the Constitution, one of the points of the Constitution, was to try to manage and marshal those, frankly, sinful, in a theological sense, but those appetites and those ambitions. That's not to elevate the Constitution to sacred scripture, but that's what they were thinking about in a lot of ways. And It is self-evident that it worked, that part of the Constitution has worked, because what you saw on January 6th was a physical attempt to exert extra constitutional force to disrupt a constitutional process. And if it had just been a mob, that's one thing. But it was a mob with an immense amount of support in the building and in the White House. So that is different. The last times a group thought about interrupting the electoral count was in 1861. And General Winfield Scott, old fuss and feather, at that point he was rather large. Uh, He had not kept up with his basic training exercise. He stationed troops and stopped it. We went from 1861 to 2021 without this level of disillusionment, of contempt, That's what it is. It's contempt for the will of the majority. And that is fundamentally, by definition, the most anti-democratic stance someone can take. Do you think it's an extension of our uh, long simmering, ever being waged culture war? Because you describe it as contempt for the will of the majority. Uh, Would you go a step further and say that there is some contempt for the majority itself and for what that majority represents and the extent to which, as you point out in your podcast, it that majority has threatened the right of a smaller group of folks to control everything, you know, from our social mores, from law, from culture. Do you think that there's just an actual contempt for the majority that we're uh, wrestling with right now? Yes, I do. And I think it, it has a lot to do with the anxieties of people who look like me. I am a boringly heterosexual white Southern male Episcopalian. Things tend to work out for me in this country, right? And a lot of folks who come from my part of the world and my part of the demographic universe 
understand at some fundamental level that our day as a majority is ending. Donald Trump was a full-on embodiment of the reaction to that demographic truth. And I don't think it's over. I think it's going to continue. It's one of the reasons we're sitting here talking about it is people understand that the country's changing. They couldn't give you the numbers probably, but there's an intuitive reality. And it is in the profit motive, the profit interest of a lot of outlets that promulgate these lies to rile people up, to perpetuate a narrative of grievance, white grievance, that the country is being taken away from them. The fact that it is a country that it was founded for we the people, and the country has by fits and starts and through tragedy and bloodshed has expanded the understanding of we the people. I celebrate a lot of the folks who are sharing in this, who are in flight from fact, don't celebrate. In fact, they condemn it. They worry about it. It terrifies them that their country is becoming something else. And to go to a point you made a minute ago about your mother, this is exactly what happened in my native region from Appomattox until today. I mean, it's still going on. But the drama of the 50s and 60s was that you had people in the Klan, you had people in the citizens' councils, which was a slightly up from the Klan on the social scale. You had people who were fighting back against the clearly justifiable expansion of the promise of the Declaration of Independence and trying to make the aspirational real. And that was terrifying. There was a, a white reaction to it. Well, we used to say it was more subtle. Now it's not particularly subtle, right? I mean, what's going on in the voting is not subtle. One is it is not gerrymandering. It's gerrymandering. Elbridge Gerry. I tried this with President Obama. I said, if you would change this, and he said, we got enough problems. He was uninterested in my, my view. The other is it's not a dog whistle if you can hear it. So we got to get that image out of the locution. So this goes to your point. Of course, it's perennial. And again, it ebbs and it flows. And the good news is Joe Biden is president. The good news is 81 million people said no. The bad news is 74 million people said yeah. The task of the next four years, God willing, is get that 7 million to be 10, to be 15, to be 20, if possible. Thanks to you and your work, I think that you're doing the important job of putting the facts out there and telling the story. We all, all of us, have a hard time reconciling certain parts of history with ourselves and our beliefs. I'm just going back to Franklin and Winston, for instance. I'm a huge history junkie. I'm a World War II junkie. Uh, I am fascinated by Winston Churchill. I am super aware of the fact, because I've read biographies, he was not a fan of black folks. I mean, and people can, you know, suggest, well, that was just of the times. Well, black people who were alive during the times, I don't think found it any more tolerable than I do uh, to be routinely disparaged. And so for me, one of the things that I do as I'm processing history and where we've come from is where we are now is that, you know, sometimes there is a thread of something that leads to something better, if I'm not being too vague. Winston Churchill, um, who, if I remember correctly from a biography, walked out of Porgy and Bess because he said he doesn't like Blackamoors, was in a battle with Adolf Hitler. One of those two men was fighting for a thread of something 
that would lead to a better place, regardless of where they were. So it's the difference between Thomas Jefferson and Robert E. Lee. One of the two of them was advancing a thread of something that allowed for our evolution. Is that's my, that's my optimistic way of processing history in a way that I think is both honest and authentic. What do you say to that? You know more than I do about these things. <laughs> so tell I me. I probably don't, <laughs> but uh, I won't take that premise. I believe that, and this is easy for me to say, but I do believe it, that if you are devoted to a more perfect union, if you are devoted to amendment, adjustment, reform, enlightenment, lowercase e, to progress, then you have much to teach us. If you were about, in our history, ending that experiment, if you were General Lee, if you were uh, Stonewall Jackson, if you were a Confederate, you were trying to end an experiment that ultimately gave us the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments and gave us a country that, honestly, most of us are willing to keep fighting for. I do think that's a bright line. My theory of Confederate monuments is, and I'm not going to tell people what to do in, in their houses or churches or schools, they, they have to fix that. But I don't think a Confederate should be on public land because they were about ending the experiment. And if they'd ended the experiment, very unlikely we would have been the country that could have projected force in the 1940s and into the 50s and 60s against totalitarianism and communist tyranny. And so it's a pretty bright line. Are you for the Constitution with all of its failings or are you against it? It comes down to, and this this brings us full circle, the will to power. Are you willing in a democracy to cede some power to your neighbor? Not just because it's the right thing to do, but if you recognize the rights, opportunities, Lincoln called an open field and a fair chance for your neighbor, then you're doing it there's a moral reason to do it, but there's also a very practical reason to do it. Because if if you cede that power, you're more likely to have it ceded back to you. You're likely to share it. And one of the issues perennially in human life and vividly on display in America today is too many people see the extension of opportunity to others as limiting their own opportunity. But I'd argue that history tells you the opposite. That in fact, the we've never been more prosperous. You know, my friend Fareed Zakaria likes to say, all right, the, the largest air force in the world is the United States Air Force. Do you know what the second one is? The United what? States Navies. We're fine, <laughs> right? There, there's there's pain and there's difficulty and there's stagnation and absolutely. But as a raw matter of material, economic, health, by and large, we've produced a worthwhile basis from which to continue to progress. But if you want to wrap that up, if you want to end that, then it seems to me you are not a rational actor in the American drama. And I'm being sometimes, I'm sure rightly, I guess, I I disagree with it, but I understand it for being overly sentimental. You know, I lionize dead white guys. But my theory of biography is that flawed people manage to do some good things. And I know in my own life, I don't do enough good things. And so if you manage to do a couple, you're ahead of me. It's not lionizing. It's case studies. It's diagnosis. It's rationality. All right. How did they do it? How did Abraham Lincoln, a racist by every conventional definition, 
how did he, in 1862 and 63, come to emancipation? Politics was a huge part of it. Military necessity was a huge part of it. But he also believed that slavery had to be put, as he put it, on a path to extinction. Was that to create more economic opportunities for white laborers? Absolutely. Was he for a long time in favor of colonization? Absolutely. But he put us, as you were saying, he picked up a thread and pressed it forward. I don't know if you can press the thread forward. I think you put, at least in my part of the forest, one of the points of biography is to put folks on a pedestal, yes, but it's not a pedestal to then fall down before them. It's a pedestal so more people can see them and perhaps learn from them. And if the best people in the American past could get so much wrong, Lord, what are we getting wrong right now? What, what, in 50 years, people are going to look back on this and say, all right, the North Pole just melted, right? Canada and Europe just drowned. What were you doing? Oh, we were fighting about Dr. Seuss. So Arthur Schlesinger, the great American historian, used to say that self-righteousness in retrospect is easy, also cheap. I'd, I'd rather be self-righteous about where we are now in real time and try to figure it out. Well, it's interesting because, as you said, flawed people can do great things. There are yeah, unintended. Well, They're the only people who can do great things because everybody's flawed. Everybody's flawed. Everybody's flawed. Great people with great flaws that we have focused on nonetheless have done great things. And you know what? Some of those great things have had unintended consequences. You know, you and I are sitting here today. I live the life I lead and enjoy the freedom I have because of the unintended consequences of the actions of a number of people who, frankly, you know, if we'd been contemporaries, would have had very little to do with me. So I think that we need to appreciate the fact that sometimes things work out in ways that are better than we might know. You have written and studied about presidents. You, I won a Pulitzer for your biography on Andrew Jackson. Tell us, how do you think this president is doing, President Biden, uh, so early in his tenure? What grade would you give him? He's got an A so far, and that wasn't a slam dunk by any means. I should say he's a friend, and I help him when he asks, so everybody should know that. I have a theory. I don't know if I've said this out loud, so I'll say it to you. We learned something important during the pandemic, which is presidential campaigns are kind of pointless. He is a better president today because he wasn't flying around the country exhausting himself, giving the same speech to different groups of people. Starting last May, June, he was able to be briefed. He was able to learn everything he could about COVID, learn everything he could about the economic impact, and really think about the challenges facing the country. And I think the vaccination rollout has been, from what I can tell, quite good. He has proposed big, ambitious programs, but they're not programs that are outside the American mainstream. So I have a theory that the last 80 years or so of American politics can be understood as a figurative conversation between FDR and LBJ over here and Reagan and George W. Bush over here. And everybody sort of governed on that field. Trump was not a sequential chapter to that conversation. Biden is. He's over there with FDR and LBJ. It's not a crazy, un-American thing. It's a active role for the state in the marketplace of a piece with a tradition that has its critics and its adherents. And that's what we're supposed to do, right? That's fine. Joe Biden is a good and decent man. I sometimes describe him as an upside down iceberg. 
you see most of them. He has actually said in my hearing, I'm about to say something, but I probably shouldn't say it in public. And I'll think, you know, he just said that on CNN, you know, like two days ago. Maybe there's a dark side to Joe Biden. I've never seen it. I don't think he's ever said anything in my hearing in private that would be embarrassing if it were repeated in public. And I've been lucky in my life. I've known a lot of these guys. And I must say that's a unique, a unique attribute. There's an old phrase. He has no side. Right. I mean, what you see is what you get. You may not like what you see. And that's fine. But he's an honest broker. And I think that's always important in a president. Given the context of the time, it's potentially at once revolutionary and restorative. How does an honest broker do business with opposing party that won't even admit the legitimacy of his election? And not only that, but will go so far as to punish those who will admit of the legitimacy of his election. How does he do business? Does he do business with the other side by extending a hand? Or does he do business with the other side by just getting things done and uh, trying to keep the Democrats in line? You just described it. You extend a hand, and if they don't take it, you, you push it through. Are there consequences? I mean, people want our leaders to compromise Everybody says that, but I don't know how one does that in, when you're in the type of environment. That's a question that for 236 years of the Constitutional Republic made sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense right now. You and I, at this point, are speaking what I call Brookings ease. <laughs> oh, no. You get it? <laughs> yes, I do. Okay. So it's, that's a question totally understandable. But it presumes a reality that doesn't exist right now. This is the kind of conversation we would have at, at Brookings. The Brookings Institute, everybody, is a um, think tank where smart people talk, talk about. about smart things and policy. Um, and it's often assumed not to have a, a, a grounding in the reality of American life, which I'm not sure is totally true. But And it's a center-left uh, institution. Richard Nixon once wanted to firebomb. So that tells you something about it. But it's Brookings ease because it presumes that there are rational actors on the other side. And there aren't. So I think the president, his view of unity is, can he pass programs that are broadly popular in the country, which may not be broadly popular in the political class of the Republican Party? So he has really interesting numbers for the specifics that he wants to do. And he's basically, rather brilliantly, decided that he's not going to go down a pointless path of compromise. He's going to pass what he can pass. And this is the way, again, the system is supposed to work. If people don't like it, they can do something in 2022 and they can do something in 2024. This is part of the insidious nature of where we are. I had a not dissimilar conversation socially the other night talking to somebody, and they were making this very interesting kind of Adam Smith, you know, economic argument about spending and debt levels and China and balance. All very, very interesting. But 60% of the guy's party thinks that Trump is still president. So my point to him was, go figure that. Once you figure that out, we'll talk about Adam Smith. You can't have a rational conversation with people who are totally irrational. And it's not enough at this point 
this would have been different five years ago. It's not enough to say, well, that's just the extreme. The point of the podcast you kindly mentioned is that the party has done this. This is the John Birch Society moving to the center of the party. This is the paranoid style has gone mainstream in the Republican Party, and I'm trying to explain why. Is it the uh, death rattle and last gasp of a dying philosophy, perhaps? Or is it the renaissance of misinformation? It's horrible to use those two words together. Is it the rise of misinformation? Is no, it the it. It's, That's a great symptom cause question. Do we have a prevailing culture of misinformation because they find it appealing and that leads to a disenchantment and a dissociation from reality, or do we have a dissociation from reality and the misinformation exacerbates it? My own view is that beginning at the end of World War II, conservatives have repeatedly, it's like Lucy in the football, they have repeatedly elected Republican presidents who have not delivered for them. So Eisenhower ratifies the New Deal functionally. Nixon governs from the center until he blew up. Ford was very much a centrist figure. Reagan is supposed to be the right-wing savior, but in fact governs pretty much from the center right. Raises taxes five times after he cuts them, negotiates into the Soviet Union, federal spending rose something like six or seven percent under Reagan, deficits exploded. George H.W. Bush is the full embodiment of this, of saying one thing on the campaign trail and doing another. And George W. Bush would tell you, if he were here, that there's a direct line between TARP and Trump, that by bailing out Wall Street in 2008, he fed the populist energies. I'm not saying that anybody went and voted for Trump because Eisenhower supported Social Security. Even I don't think that. But I think that those facts created a climate where conservatives driven in, again, anxiety about demographic change, unhappiness with the rise of Obama, they saw that the only way to genuinely press their worldview was to step away from Brookings and to speak Trump. And it is elementally, and this is what's happening with Kevin McCarthy right now and McConnell, it's elementally about power. It's elementally about the marshalling and the maintenance of that. And I don't know if a party can long survive if that's it. It can hold on for a long time, uh, no doubt. But I do think that there's an existential question here about a party that has been a vital element in a constitutional experiment that is now openly not only insidious, but deleterious to the republic. I never, in a, again, I'm George H.W. Bush's biographer, right? I mean, I did not think I would ever be saying this. But at a certain point, part of the, the greatness of America is that if you see something, you say something. And this is what I see. So before you go, uh, tell us this. All of this, you know, we're in the middle of what is a distinct moment in history. I mean, we've seen political parties come and go. I mean, you and I haven't seen it, but it's happened. We're seeing the rise in uh, misinformation. Fate of Fact, your new podcast, everybody should check it out, really discusses how uh, misinformation has been embraced by, by the American right. Are you hopeful about America? Are you hopeful for our future? 
And if you are, why? I am because Biden won. And I don't mean to make him into Fortinbras or, or Jesus or something. But the fact that 81 million people said, no, we don't want this anymore, is a sign of hope. The fact that 74 million people looked around at the COVID response and other things and thought, yeah, we want more of that, gives me enormous pause. But it matters a lot to me, perhaps wrongly, but it does, that Trump never got a majority. That tells me that there are just enough of our better angels who are pushing toward a more just and fair-minded country. So I am hopeful in that sense. I do think that hope requires in this moment a strong sense of vigilance, an active citizenship of vigilance. And you're very good early question about okay, everybody's going to listen to this is going to agree with me already. That may be. But if we don't diagnose it, then you can't win any converts, mixing metaphors. And all you need, and I'm not a political scientist, but what if you got five to seven million people over the next couple of years to say, you know what, we've sobered up. I'm sorry. (laughs) I was wrong. That's a significant number. You get, again, you get to sort of 55% of the country saying no. Historically speaking, that's a good number. That doesn't mean that there's, and this, this is an important point, American history is not a fairy tale. There was not a once upon a time. I am not arguing that, oh, if only we could go back to 1933, that would be great because it wouldn't. And there's not going to be a happily ever after because this is a daily struggle to preserve something that is counter to human nature. We are much more likely, you know, there have been many more monarchies and autocracies than there have been democracies. We have a very precious experiment here, and I don't want it to end on my watch. I don't think you're going to let it. John Meacham, his podcast, Fate of Fact, As you said, sir, you are diagnosing a problem. And from my maybe naively optimistic view, I think that energized truth-telling will defeat loud lying any day of the week. John Meacham, you are a gift and a treasure. And I really, uh, thank you so much for being here. Really, uh, this has been wonderful. It's fun, thank you. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer. Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse Thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody. 